calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, I'm Jason Voss, Content Director for CFA Institute. I am at our Middle Eastern Investment Conference 2014. Joining me today is Dr. Adrian Bell, who is the Chair of Financial History, as well as the Head of the Department at IMCA Center, uh, Henley Business School, Reading University. Welcome. Thank you. All right, so for the first question today, and the topic today is financial history, quite naturally. So for my first question... Why isn't financial history more widely taught? It seems like a fairly logical thing to want to teach. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not taught. Uh, it, it's taught in, in, say, history departments as economic history. It's a bo- people think it's quite boring economic history, but in business schools, it's not widely taught. So you're quite right. In, in the in the ICMA centre, we teach a history module, uh, and in the business school in Henley, we've got a lot of financial historians. Uh, but it's mainly teaching. Perhaps uh, I teach back to medieval times. They teach 20th century history. Um, but it's not seen as being something that students want to know about. Um, but in America and the US, there are one or two outposts and, and famous people who do teach financial history, again, back to, say, the 19th, 20th centuries. But it's only at Reading that you'll go back to uh, medieval times when we teach financial history. That, well, that's, that's an interesting story. So, so what's the relevance? Like, why, why would one want to study financial history? Yeah, I think that's the problem. That in finance, it's seen as being not relevant because every time we come across a new investment opportunity, it's something that's never happened before. So the big, the big example is the technology, bu- technology bubble. It wasn't going to be a bubble because these technologies were something that had never happened before. You know, they're so amazing that that's why. Why were, they not, why were they not worth their fundamentals anymore? Why did they depart from fundamentals? When a bubble happens, this happens. Why did they do that? Because they were so amazing. No one had ever thought of this technology before. It was going to change the world. When if you actually sat down and look at it, it was just a catalogue company. You know, you're just looking at a catalogue online and they're going to send you something in the post. You know, there wasn't really that much value in that that, that made these, these t- stocks expand. So what people need to think about more is, historically, these things happen. And for the technology bubble, we have technology bubbles all the time. You've got a railway bubble uh, in the 19th century that people could then draw upon and say, look, this happened in America. There's all these railways came about. Because everyone said, look, railways never happened before. They're amazing. Let's all invest in railways. And there's a huge bubble, and it, and it crashed. So there are exact examples that we should be looking at and that we just think, no, we're not going to because, you know, this has never happened before. So, so no point. So what I hear you saying is context. The study of financial history provides a context that may be different than the current context, which allows you to hopefully see, see something in a new light. Yeah, it gives you... It's, 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 I think perhaps some of the problem is about teaching a financial history. Maybe it's not been done very well, you know, since we haven't looked very carefully to look for these, these, uh, these examples to contextualise. And finance academics teaching the pure finance, very mathematical, you know, can't think about the context... So I'm not a finance academic, I'm a historian, so I'm all context, yeah? So, but, so what we say is we can teach the context and we can also teach the finance. Um, and what you need in business schools, therefore, I would argue, is people like myself, these people who can bridge, you know, who can do finance and history, 
uh, together for people to make it more interesting and, and contextualize. It's a good word. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so let's uh, switch context here, I say. Uh, so when, when did, in your opinion, did financial history begin? Is it as old as time itself? Is it like one of those things where it had to be invented, or is it one of those things that's so natural in terms of human beings and how they interact with one another that it was inevitable? Yeah, I don't want to say it, but I'd have to agree that that probably is true. Um, it's all about the nature. All the work we do, and, and uh, when you think back, you don't do this at the time, you think about it, it's all been about credit. You know, It's about credit through society. Even when you're looking at things like uh, a forward contract or foreign exchange, you know, not purely looking at credit, it is still credit. So I say if you go back and back and back, there's always this need for credit. Now, that might be in the past. People talk about barter societies you know, in, in terms of not using cash. But again, they'd still be using some form of understood credit arrangements. You right. know, if I'm going to borrow a horse off you today, you know, what am I going to give you next week in, re- in response? The actual earliest recorded we've got is, is in Mesopotamia, where we've got recorded examples on little cuneiform tablets recording loans from a god uh, to an individual at fixed rates of 20% for silver and 33% for barley over a year. And the god lends this out via his middleman, the priest in the temple. The people come to the temple to borrow, and, and the priest is happy to help them because they're growing. So the, he's, he's, he's lending this money for the common good because they're growing uh, crops, and without that, that loan, they won't be able to buy the wheat or, he actually, or the barley, or he actually loans them the barley direct. They grow the barley, they give him a share, but that share is calculated at an interest. Very interesting. So what I, if I'm going to put words in your mouth, uh, it's inevitable almost that finance uh, be present. As long as there's been human endeavor and people are not hunter-gatherer, yeah. uh, it sounds like people have been engaging in financial transactions, yeah? Yes, that's right. And I think and the, the interesting thing also about what, uh, what, what we talked about there in Mesopotamia is that interest is also in those transactions. So not only has finance been about, but it's understood that, that if I'm going to take money, I'm going to borrow something, I will pay some interest on that, uh, reasonable interest, uh, in, in, in that same transaction. Yeah. So when I hear the terms credit and, and uh, uh, interest rates, I naturally think of leverage. When I naturally think of leverage, I think of defaults. So I'm guessing the financial history, the, the course of it, there have been many defaults. Is that, that true? Yeah, I mean, the history of finance is history of defaults. And, and there's two reasons for that, or maybe more, but I think of two of them. One of them is that because you hear about them. So why do we know about them? Is because they happen and they're written down, and sometimes defaults become legal. And we get a lot of our information in financial historians. A big problem we've got is data. Where do we get the data from? And a lot of our data, when I go back to the Middle, middle Ages, has to only occurs because it's been recorded legally. Right. So there's been a problem, there's been a default, between two individuals or two companies, how do we know about it? We wouldn't know about it because they've gone to court to argue it. And when they've gone to court, they've written down or presented, these are the contracts we agreed to, and this is what happens. Therefore, we've got the contract, but only because of the default. So that's why I say history of financial history, finance history is about the history of defaults because that's all right, we know right, about. Right. Yeah? But we also know about sometimes when people would register their debts as a way of protecting themselves from future defaults. So it's not always default. Sometimes it's debt, 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 debt recognition. Right. So we recognize the debts, we write them down in case. But a lot of the times it's about defaults. And also defaults are things that, that resonate through history. You know, so since we hear about a big default, like a sovereign default, then that's going to happen again. And when we hear about it, then we drag up these old examples to think about, well, what happened then? What was the result? Why did it happen? what happened because of it, and what happened next. You know, we want to know that because then we can start understanding what's happened now. So those are the big things we go about. You never think about the good times or the boom to think about the defaults. So if you look at history, people always show you a graph 
and it always goes like this or like that, and it's always the bits we're looking at is these bits down here, not these bits up here. We're looking at these bits down here. Right. Okay, so I, I think I remember from my history that there were debtor prisons. So I'm guessing that's uh, what would happen uh, for the individual that would default on loan. What about sovereign defaults uh, in the Middle Ages and, and maybe before? I mean, how, how does an Italian banker... Uh, sue the King of England. Yeah, I mean, they can't. I mean, that's it. I mean, the same as now. A sovereign cannot be sued. Yes? Right. The sovereigns are a sovereign. How do you take a sovereign to court? You can't. So when Greece defaults, or it did or, or, did or didn't default, nothing. You can't do anything about it. You know, it just it's defaulted. Argentina defaults, it defaults. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. Nothing you can do. What happens is you enter into a wilderness. As that, as that sovereign, you must understand there's going to be some pain. Right. But it, and at that point, then, it's like a game. Am I going to decide, yes, I'm going to take the default and take the pain, but actually, in five, ten years, it's going to be, I'm going to be in a better position. Or do I carry on throwing good money after bad into this big hole I'm digging and not default? Right. And sometimes, you know, it might be unpopular to say it, sometimes the answer is that defaulting could be the best answer for the people of that particular sovereign country. Sure. Yeah. And just in the Middle Ages, it becomes more understandable because the sovereign himself is one person. So it's actually Edward III defaulting and walking away. We think about that one person defaulting. Yeah, but as now we talk about a whole country defaulting, it's more difficult for us to get our heads around because it's the whole country defaulting. But the same, the same issue, there's nothing you can do about it. But the sovereign knows, either himself personally or as a whole country, that things will be bad for a bit. Right. But then they might get better or they might get worse. So, so in that answer, uh, you've touched on, you've, you've done this throughout the interview, my next question. Um, so my next question is what are the similarities between modern finance and, and ancient finance? It sounds like there are more similarities than differences. Could you highlight both, please? Yeah. So this, this, the similarities are, is I think everything you can find now in finance you can find in the past. I mean, my particular, uh, I particularly look at the Middle Ages, but I also talked about this Mesopotamia example as well. So, you know, there's ideas of loaning. You know, I borrow some money and it can be repaid on a one-to-one -one basis. But we also find forward contracts so a derivative product on an underlying. So I can buy a derivative, a forward, on something that's, that's an underlying product. Mm -hmm. In Europe, there's a, there's a very well-developed foreign exchange market where currency prices are being quoted in cities around Europe on a regular daily basis. They know what the price is in anywhere throughout Europe on that day because of their network of agents that are working around Europe. So that, that might surprise people that, you know, you could send foreign exchange abroad. I mean, you know, like our traveler's checks nowadays. Oh, no, we don't do traveler's checks anymore, do we? But when you go to take your money abroad, you know, there's a foreign exchange element to the, to mm -hmm. the process in medieval sure. Europe like there is now. There's also international balance transfers. You know, if the English king wanted to make a payment in Avignon to the Pope's court, you know, he didn't have to send any money. He did that by sending a paper document. So paper money, you know, electronic communication now, paper communication then, all the same. What's different is is then it was the volume was smaller. So I'd say now the volume's like turned up max. You know, we've got the max, you know, it's blaring out the, headphone, you know, out the headphones or out the speakers, like we can't hear ourselves because it's so loud. It's just the same things being done more and more in a higher and higher volume. That's, all, that's the only difference. Everything's the same and it's all about why we do it is to smooth business, but today we do it for its own sake. That's the difference. But perhaps then in medieval times I could also find people who did it to speculate. So there's a foreign exchange market, and I could probably find merchants who speculated on differences, arbitrage opportunities to make money. So again, no difference, but smaller. I suppose the biggest consequence for now is that when there is a default, it has bigger consequences for the whole of the world. Whereas in the past, one country defaulting without the links and the communication with the rest of the world wasn't such a big deal. 
Yeah, so that's when you found when, the, when, when America had big problems, 2007, you know, the rest of the world suffered. Apart from, say, the, the, the China, New Zealand, Australia seemed to be okay because they've got different links. You know, the rest of the world suffered. Whereas in Europe, if the King of England defaulted, who suffered? Apart from the Italian, Italian bank that lent him the money and the poor suckers who'd lent the Italian guy, right. who'd invested the, Itali the money with the Italian guy. That's who you shouldn't forget about. The actual investors in the Italian man's bank who then went default. They're the ones who paid. You know, and the English king was back on his feet pretty quick. Okay, so with that stark uh, sort of difference uh, between uh, ancient and modern finance, uh, I want to thank you for being here. And if you would like more information on this and other interviews, please go to www.cfainstitute.org. Thank you. Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.